From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Chief of Naval Operations is back at work this week after heart surgery the Navy didn't disclose until Tuesday. Admiral Michael Gilday had the surgery in late August. He's been recuperating at home since then. The Wall Street Journal reports the Navy's only saying it was a, quote, pre-existing medical issue and didn't mention it until the newspaper asked. A tool the Pentagon's using to fight COVID is sticking around after the pandemic is gone. The Joint Acquisition Task Force will become a permanent assisted acquisition group inside the department starting next year. Federal News Network reports the new name will be the Defense Assisted Acquisition Cell. It'll be part of the Joint Rapid Acquisition Cell. The Department of Veterans Affairs and the National Archives have wrapped up a collaboration to digitize deck logs to process claims faster for Blue Water Navy veterans. The VA says it finished the logs for Navy ships in December 2019 and Coast Guard logs last month. NextGov reports the two agencies digitized the equivalent of 29,000 boxes of documents. The Office of Personnel Management has a new list of government jobs that need certain education requirements. That list includes more than 27% of federal jobs. It's part of an executive order to put more emphasis on skills in federal hiring and less of an emphasis on higher education. Jeff Neal's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's chairman of the National Academy of Public Administration. Jeff, it's great to see you again. What's your take from this list of skill or list of jobs that OPM has released and the comments that it's taking on whether uh, educational requirements should stay the same or change? Hi, Francis. I think one of the things that's important to say up front is OPM is actually moving very quickly on this. And when you and I had talked about this when the, the executive order first came out, I said I didn't think OPM would move fast enough uh, to be able to meet the deadline. And they actually are. So I think they're really putting a lot of effort into this. And I, I give OPM kudos for that. Uh, and it's interesting because a lot of what they've put in there as jobs that have will still have an education requirement are things that I think people would want somebody to have a, a degree. You know, for example, physicians. I really don't want to go to a doctor who, you know, who, who has no degree and no, no real medical education, but who wrote a good resume. So that's a really good thing. Uh, and there are other professions where the, the profession requires uh, a degree for credibility. So that's a really good thing. And, and what they've done is they've actually gone out and talked to professional organizations uh, about various types of jobs to see what gives somebody credibility in that field and can you actually do the work with without a degree and so if you look at, at their their document they put out uh, what they've done is they've listed who they've gotten information from so you can see which professional organization or licensing board um, whatever it is that they've gone to so i think that was a really good thing so overall i would say the progress on this is very good and frankly, I think uh, what they've done is is good work. I, I, I give them a lot of credit for it. What are the next steps in your view that makes this really work well for agencies, that it helps them get in the kinds of people that maybe they weren't getting before with the emphasis on education? And, and how does one know that one is bringing in someone that really does have the skills? What's the skills evaluation, I guess? Uh, what does that piece of this look like? 
Well, that's a great thing to bring up because that's really the most important part of this. The, the, the education is just the, the basic qualification requirement that they looked at. So this is just, you know, that's just, that's getting your foot in the door. And what OPM is mandating is much better uh, professionally done assessments. So you actually are able to identify the real skills that are required for a job and then have some way other than these, these self-assessment questionnaires that people have been using for so many years now, where everyone just says, hey, I'm wonderful and gets the top score and then there's no real differentiation between candidates. What they're gonna be requiring is, is real assessments where you are able to find out, does the person have the skills? And it's not just me saying I'm wonderful because you know we all know we're wonderful, but, but we want somebody else to say that we're wonderful too. And so I, I think that's, that's the most important part of this. And what OPM's done is they've asked for comments. And so I'm sure there are gonna be some people in some occupations will go back and say, oh my goodness, you can't possibly say that somebody in our, our field doesn't have to have a degree. But the real thing they should be paying attention to is how they're going to do the assessments and what those assessments are. And that's really what's gonna differentiate between the, the candidates who are not very good and the candidates who are really great and do a great job. Um, if it will help, I will tell you that you're wonderful, Jeff. I appreciate you <laughs> coming you. on the program. Um, how do we friend. avoid getting back to where we wanted to get away from five or ten years ago, and that's KSAs? That seemed to be what the government did for a long time to try to get a sense of what somebody really had to offer rather than the self-assessment questionnaire. And I don't think we want to go back to that, but it sounds like we want to go to some type of evaluation of what somebody really has to offer. But you're absolutely right. We don't want to go back to KSA narratives where someone writes 20 pages. Um, actually, the worst application I ever saw in my entire career, somebody brought it in in the box that a ream of paper came in and the lid didn't fit because there was so much paper. So they, they had an over 500 page resume, if you can call that a resume. Uh, what we don't want to go back to those and, and assessments are not uh, KSA narratives. Uh, the only difference in the KSA narrative and the questionnaires we're using now is the questionnaires that people are using now give the, uh, the applicant the opportunity to just check a box that says I'm wonderful. With the old KSA narratives, they had to write an essay that said I'm wonderful. So what's different here is we're talking about, about assessments that are uh, for the most part are instruments that are designed by people who have the right skills uh, usually an industrial organizational psychologist. And those kinds of assessments actually are much better at differentiating between the good candidates and the not so good candidates. And it, they're much, much harder to gain. And that's the real thing. The, the, the KSA narratives were gamed. The KSA questionnaires just made gaming it easier. And so those are even worse now. And so, so moving to well done statistically valid, enforceable, or defendable in court assessments is really the way to go. And, and I think OPM's got that right, and I give them credit for it. Jeff Neal, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Great to be here. Up next, out with the old and in with the fiscal new year. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a look back at the record-breaking spending of fiscal 20 and a look ahead at what's to come. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The federal government rings in the fiscal new year today and leaves behind a year with record spending. The government spent over $6 trillion in fiscal 20, bringing the deficit to $3 trillion. Mike Hettinger is president of Hettinger Strategy Group. Now, Mike, if you are like me, you spent last night in a tuxedo and a top hat celebrating the new fiscal year. What does that number say to you about what we spent in fiscal 2020? Is that a surprise that we're at the highest number ever? No, I don't think so. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, if you a lot of what we're spending still is mandatory spending, right? So then you lump the the CARES Act money, the the two two and a half trillion dollars that we spent related to the CARES Act, um, and all of a sudden you get up to a number that's going to look, you know, at six six and a half trillion dollars. So remember, I mean, most you know, the, the CARES Act money is about. Uh, a little more than uh, almost twice what we spend on discretionary spending overall for the year. So that's a big boost in government spending just just there. The uh, continuing resolution runs through December 11th. I haven't seen any anomalies in it for any of the things that you and I usually talk about. What do you expect to see happen between now and then regarding the priorities that we talk about on an ongoing basis, technology modernization fund, uh, and all those things. And do you see what is the discussion around the stimulus bill that Speaker Pelosi and uh, Secretary Mnuchin are discussing with any of those priorities included? So there's a bunch of anomalies in the in the continuing resolution, but but you're right, there's not a whole heck of a lot that uh, directly addresses the things that those of us in um, in federal IT care about. So, um, you know, we'll see what happened. I, I'm worried personally about the December 11th date. I think given, you know, potentially somewhat volatile post-election environment, December 11th is going to be a tough date to uh, to get things going. So I worry about that date. Um, in terms of the, the, uh, the stimulus, you know, look, it looked like it was dead a week ago, and now it looks like it, it has uh, has some life. I think I said um, to one of the folks I talked to yesterday, you know, we're looking at maybe a 30, 35% chance, and maybe that's gone up a little bit today, of actually getting um, some stimulus done. It seems like they're about $700 billion apart right now, um, which seems like a lot of money, but really it's not when you're talking about trillions. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think we've got a chance to get it done. You know, there is, um, and we talk a lot on this program about uh, the, the TMF, but there is a billion dollars in the, in the revised CARES Act for uh, the technology modernization fund. So if that were to come through in the final bill, that would be, um, I think, a big win for all of us in federal IT. It's a huge deal, I think, if given that we've been talking for the last five years or so, it seems like, about, you know, 100 million would make a big difference. All of right. a sudden, 10 times that would, would potentially be really a jump start for a lot of these issues that are going on around government, right? Absolutely. And again, I've talked a lot about needing to take the strings off of, of the TMF, right? Some of the payback um, requirements and that sort of thing. So if we could not only get the billion, but then look at ways to, to really, you know, use that money to accelerate IT modernization, I think that would be a tremendous win. Have the agencies done the groundwork that they should do to be able to be ready to submit presentations to the board to make good cases to get that money if it comes around. That strikes me as maybe the biggest challenge here. Well, I mean, I'm going to say probably, right? There were, I think, 25 or so programs uh, or projects that were in the queue that hadn't been funded previously. Um, so you'd think that those would be, you know, kind of the ones that would, would take priority. But, um, but hopefully, you know, agencies are looking at, at what's going on, thinking about what projects potentially fit 
um, into the, the TMF fund and, and are prepared to make those um, requests if, if the you know funds come through. I want to go back to the FY20 number that we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, Mike. What trends did you see or do you see as you look back at the contract spending in 2020? Anything different? Do you see any big changes that are happening in the areas that you pay attention to? Um, that's a good question. I mean, obviously we'll have to unpack it when we when we get through it all. You know, so much of the spending actually takes place in September, so we, we probably won't um, know exactly what that looks like. I mean, I, I hope there were additional investments in, in information technology. I hope that when we unpack the numbers, we recognize that, you know, kind of how we work is changing and um, and we need to uh, we need to continue to invest in IT and the infrastructure that it takes to work from home and do television interviews over Skype and and things like that. So I hope we see that. I, I don't know exactly what uh, what it's all going to look like when we unpack it, but I do think you know if, if you look at the CARES Act money and the money that's been spent, um, a lot of that um, there was a lot of supplemental appropriations that went to agencies. You know, three hundred and forty billion dollars plus. Um, and a lot of that money went to IT. So we'll see how it all shakes out. The transitional spending on uh, remote work, I think, is potentially the most interesting thing of all the ones that you mentioned too, Mike, because before we went on the air, you said something that I'm hearing from lots of people, and that is seven months of this is just about enough. There are a lot of people who, when it is safe, want to go back to collaborative environments where they're working face-to-face -face around other people. What do you think that potentially has to say that that attitude that sentiment has to say uh, about the way that it will inform the way agencies go about spending in 21 well i think what we're going to see as we as we come through all of this is is revised work schedules that that are kind of one day on one day off a b blue gold whatever you want to call it right i think that's what you know as we come out of this we're not going to have you know every office full right i mean i've talked to I've talked to clients, I've talked to, to folks in government agencies, there's a lot of reconfiguring of workspace going on, right? We went to open offices over the last few years and now there's a lot of, oh wow, we need to find a way to separate employees. So, you know, that takes more space. I've talked to some clients who um, are literally acquiring more space, taking on another another floor in their building and I've talked to others who say, I don't think we need an office anymore. So um, it's gonna change and, and so, you know, the federal government and, and the companies that are involved in it are going to have to figure out how they adapt to that. But again, and, and we'll talk about this, right? This is not a, this is not a 20 problem. It's not a 21 problem. And it's probably not even a 22 problem. We've got to figure out what work looks like, you know, over the next five years as, as we deal with this. I just heard something uh, this morning, I think it was on, uh, on CNN, that the airlines don't expect to be back to full operational capacity until 24. So that tells you people aren't going to travel and that's going to put, you know, continuing emphasis on um, on Skype meetings, on on Zoom, whatever it is, right? Remote meetings, uh, because people just aren't going to hop on a plane and, and travel to do things in person that they used to do. Mike Hettinger, thanks very much as always. Thanks, Francis. Up next, cybersecurity at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Straight ahead on Government Matters is bring your own device making a comeback. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. This month's Digital VA is brought to you by Pure Storage.
Telehealth visits are up a thousand percent at the Department of Veterans Affairs since the pandemic began. The VA is also boosting its digital bandwidth to accommodate more sessions simultaneously. Paul Cunningham's the Chief Information Security Officer at the VA. Paul, welcome back. Thanks for coming on the program. What did you have to do infrastructure-wise and security-wise to accommodate that explosion in telehealth visits and all the other remote work environment things that you had to do to accommodate employees across the agency? Well, I think the big thing is we have to recognize that we were already working a lot of these issues already. Uh, certainly, the department is uh, across the globe has a lot, or across the nation has a lot of uh, employees, and in that, or, uh, we really had to kind of step up our game, especially in snow days or those sort of things. But handling something like this across the whole nation uh, was a real challenge for us. But again, we were working with our business partners uh, on how can we increase that bandwidth. Uh, we also went, went out and reached out to them to come in and work with us side by side, find ways that we can actually streamline and improve our. And so from there, that was our, our biggest uh, success, actually, biggest tool in our, our toolbox to do that. The next step we had to do is talk to our employees. I mean, this was a new environment for us and help them understand what that meant to them, not only about how they're going to do the work, but how to connect in and how to do it securely. And so again, it was a team effort. Um, as we brought people in and as we started moving more and more remotely, it was the uh, leadership under uh, the secretary, CIO, and certainly the undersecretaries talking to their staff about understanding that while we're doing this remotely, in a way, a very new world for us, that we had to do it in a secure manner. Um, so again, it was, a, it was a team effort. Paul, what does the asset management landscape look like at VA now? Uh, BYOD was a thing for a while. What role did that play, if any, as you transition to remote work at VA? Uh, sure, thanks uh, for the question. Uh, first, I wanna say that we've been doing a, a lot of work uh, with BYOD, but actually it's more of, uh, we like to use the term of more selecting your own devices, because that. BYOD implies that you can bring your home computer from Best Buy and just plug it in the network, and that's not the case. Uh, however, you know we do have them select devices that the government has bought that we do maintain and uh, uh, run for the individual. Uh, but as we do more remote, we do know that uh, people are able to use their home computer to VPN or to a virtual private network into their instance inside the department. And we have a very strong VPN network. Uh, we have our gateways. Uh, and in there, we have the same security that they would have if they were actually sitting at the desktop. So in our issue is really, is, can we have enough bandwidth to handle all those people all hitting those gateways at the same time? And that's the great work that the uh, uh, technicians and the um, uh, IT team has put together uh, across all of our sites. Whether it's uh, remote work capability or any other capability, are the security demands different inside VBA, uh, VHA, and cemeteries, or are the security needs pretty similar among the different components of VA, Paul? Well, I think in the, we talked about the new normal. I think there's uh, it's it's the same cybersecurity standards and requirements that we still have. It's just a different environment. And each place has different requirements, especially when we start talking about telehealth, we're, we're engaging our uh, veterans in a different manner. So while there might be some changes in how we do it, the cybersecurity landscape relatively remains the same. In 
and all the work we've done and the support of NIST, OMB, ACAT are very, very important. We have less than a minute left. What's your workforce look like? How are they holding up underneath uh, all of this, Paul? Uh, I, I got to just uh, give them uh, hats off, applaud their work. Uh, everybody's engaging. It's new for a lot of them, and but they're calling each other. They're sharing information, sharing best practices. They're communicating with their supervisors when they have opportunities. And, and definitely people found some real benefits on the fact that they don't have that commute time, so their quality of life, their work-life balance adjusted uh, very well. And we want to be able to see where we can actually maximize that once we get back to normal, where we can uh, remove some of the uh, thoughts and this around telework, uh, but also be able to sit there and where we can find some more efficiencies here. Part. Paul Cunningham, the VA, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back. It's my pleasure. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC 7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.